Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 6.21 a.m. Central Standard Time. It's the 9th of December, 2020. Today is episode 336 of Bitcoin, and this is an interview with Jack Spearco, uh, the host of the podcast, The Survival Podcast. Now, I got a, a fairly long history with listening to The Survival Podcast, probably starting back in 2013, I'm thinking. Um, this guy's been doing this podcast for like 13 years, um, and... You know, don't get set off by the survival podcast, okay? This dude is not, this is not your bunker guy. This is not your waiting for the zomble revolution, you know? This is not the dude who who just stacks MREs and, and shit like that. He's got real practical advice about, you know, preparedness and other other things on his podcast. But one of the other things is permaculture, which... And it wasn't just, as you'll find out in the interview, I, I kind of pulled, finally pulled the trigger on buying Bitcoin because of Jack Spearco. I, you know, and you'll hear this, I'd heard about it and it, it takes a couple of hits in the face before you, you get off your ass and you do something. Uh, and this, and Bitcoin for me, uh, it was exactly that way. It took a couple of punches in the face and you know, listening to the survival podcast, you know, part of his preparedness plan, you know, plans are uh, savings, you know, uh, sound money. The The funny thing about permaculture is that a lot of what you guys read and, and listen to, like Nassim Taleb, the notion of anti-fragility, the notion of brittleness, um, time horizons, you know, the, the, that kind of thing. Before I even got into Bitcoin, I knew about all that because I was coming out of permaculture. I, I know it, it, it. The thing about it is, for me, it's kind of, it's very interesting that this is for. In my case, I, maybe it wasn't that I fell down the rabbit hole. In my case, I've been thinking about this since the interview. I kind of went through the looking glass because this is sort of a mirror image. Bitcoin and and what the Bitcoiners think about is uh, like damn near a mirror image, not an not antithetical, but just a reversed image of the world that I came out of, which was you know I was listening to a lot of people talk about permaculture, regenerative agriculture, you know holistic management, aquaponics, aquaculture, microponics, aeroponics, you name it, man. If it had something to do with growing protein or plants. You know, I was all over it, and yet all these people talked about was the exact same thing that Bitcoiners talk about all the time. And that that was pretty much what spurred me to get Jack Spearco on the show. 
uh, have a great amount of respect for this gentleman, and I hope you have a you know I hope you get a lot out of this one. Um, we talked for an hour and twenty minutes, and I could barely touch all the stuff that I wanted to go over, and we could have selected one part of just we talk about well we talk about permaculture preparedness and podcasting. I had to completely X out the entire section I had planned on education. Because uh, there just wasn't any, there wasn't any time. I could have talked to this dude for like three straight hours, and we never would have gotten finished with one part of permaculture if if we had, you know, if we had wanted to. Because it's that deep. Um, we could have talked about preparedness for a lot, you know, for just as long because the the notion of preparedness is that deep. So, given that we go over a couple of you know different topics, I'm trying to drag him back to Bitcoin and. But even if the you know even if dragging it back to Bitcoin doesn't do as much for you as anything else, then you know take away some of the things from you know how to think about landscapes, how to think about because you, like in permaculture, you don't have to have acreage to do some of the things that are quote unquote permaculture, and you'll find that one out in this episode too. So um, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you uh, take a lot away from it. If you want to support this show, uh, please get a sphinx chat honestly it's the easiest way it literally is the easiest way because you can listen to this you can listen to this episode on sphinx chat and stream me satoshis as low as one to something like one to three satoshis per minute and support this show at the same time that you're listening to it okay and so go to uh sphinx chat or sphinx dot chat is where you can pick up everything that you need to know about how to do this it, you can connect Sphinx Chat to your own Lightning node. It's a little dicey, yeah, uh, but yeah, there's you know, it's an interesting exercise, you know, because you kind of got to modify some JSON files and you know that kind of thing, you know, at the at the base level of your node. And if you're, but if you're if you're weirded out about that, they have nodes that you can rent. And again, those those lightning nodes that you can rent, I rented mine for four thousand satoshis, which for you know, and I rented it for the month, which is well at the time was seventy nine cents, which is and I think I bought it. I think I got my node at around the same price that we're at right now, which is eighteen thousand three hundred twenty one. Be aware, FUD is occurring in a very very coordinated way right now. That's why you're seeing price drops. Uh, you're seeing some news come out about. Uh, MicroStrategy, you're seeing some other headlines. Uh, I saw one yesterday <coughs> reiterating the fact that Bitcoin is used by money laundering and, you know, for money laundering and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, same shit, different day. Anyway, again, if you want to support the show, go to Sphinx Chat or Sphinx.chat, get the app, join, the, uh, join my tribe. You can find my tribe at tribes.sphinx.chat. And uh, join my tribe, which, you know, will cost you a few Satoshis. You can message me in the tribe for uh, like, I think like a couple of Satoshis. And you can listen to the show and stream me Satoshis in micro payment format at the same time that you're listening to the show. And it's a great way to support not only my show, but a whole bunch of other Bitcoin shows. I'm trying to get Jack Spearco to put the, the survival podcast on there. Because I kind of want to start listening to his show again, but in the format where I can actually stream him value while he streams me value. Because the Survival Podcast, to me, has been very valuable 
uh, go check it out. And we're going to say, we're going to say hello to Jack Spirico right about now. Jack Spirico, welcome to Bitcoin and how's it going, man? Good, man. Glad to be with you today. Thank you. Um, I guess the, the, the first part of this in, in case, um, like my listeners probably don't know who you are and that's kind of sad because the reason that I got into Bitcoin was you were, you were the last, you were the last straw that dropped. I'd heard about it, heard about it, heard about it, you know, read about it. And I just wasn't pulling the triggers. And I've, uh, there was, I can't remember. I, it was, must've been 2015. Uh, I was listening to you talk on your show and you were like, dude, if you haven't done it by now, just grab some, learn how to use it and, and give me some and, you know, come uh, support the <laughs> podcast with it. And that's, that's what I did. So I, you know, the, the people that, that I'm kind of like, you know, my audience is basically a bunch of Bitcoiners. And what I find fascinating about these guys is that I came to Bitcoin out of ag- like regenerative agriculture stuff, aquaculture, permaculture. I was like, I was devouring everything that I could find on this stuff. I find your show. And then I pulled the trigger on Bitcoin because of that and then slipped into a completely different genre. Now I find that I'm in this genre and I see a lot of people who they they talk about getting out of the cities. They, they want to start a farm. They want to, they, they're interested in meat and real food. And I'm like, Oh my God, the collision between these two worlds is just, it's, it's too important not to have somebody like Jack Spirico on to give the others for the Bitcoiners to give the other side of that world where I came from to get into their world if you see what I mean. So mm-hmm. you, you were in the army. Can you like, I don't know, go back into like your past a little bit and, and tell the audience kind of Jack, who Jack Spirico is and what you're about. Great. You threw my own kind of question at me anyway. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I was in the army a very, very long time ago. So long ago that probably we have people listening who were not alive yet to this show. Uh, it was back in the very, very late eighties through early nineties. Uh, I was a mechanic and I focused on my, with my job troubleshooting more than anything else. So everything in my life from that point forward became very systems orientated. So what I mean by that is when you're a soldier and you're a mechanic, you think of it as a guy that, you know, fixes broken trucks and sure you do. But a lot of times those trucks are like a person that goes to the doctor, but it can't talk. Right. So the truck mm-hmm. doesn't work. That's, 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 you know, a good description of what an operator will tell you. It doesn't work. Oh, okay, great. So then you got to figure out what's wrong with it. And you can't ask it. So whenever there's a, a, a problem in a vehicle, there's a great big manual called a technical manual in the military. All equipment that's maintained has one of these. And it says, start here and go to there. And then if that doesn't, get you the problem and go to here. And it gives you a logical sequence starting at the beginning to the end. And sure, there's times when you go, well, I know what's wrong. It needs a clutch and you just, you do it. But if you don't know what's wrong, you follow this troubleshooting procedure. And that was really kind of my first introduction to systems thinking. And I took that through sales and marketing through most of my career. My background is heavy into technology, computer hardware, network testing, network infrastructure, 
later as the dot-com boom really kind of came on, I got into uh, internet marketing mainly as a, a sales VP for a company called Fluke Networks because, well, we were in the middle of a recession and they you know doubled my quota without any help. So I was like, well, I have to start selling more stuff, getting more leads for my reps, et cetera. Uh, so I started learning about the internet and I started, you know, putting a lot more people in seats at things like seminars and stuff like that, using that. Eventually I decided that was a more interesting life. And so I kind of took a step back with my income and took a position in web marketing for like a third of what I was making in sales just so I could be surrounded by people that did nothing else every day. And I did that for a, a, a bit and then found a, a gentleman that I formed a partnership with named Neil Franklin, uh, pretty switched on uh, entrepreneur out of the UK, won the Branson Award twice. Uh, so really kind of a high level guy, worked with him for a number of years. And even with all of that, I just got to a point where I could not take corporate America anymore. Like mm. all of the success I had, Every time I hit another level that I thought would make me happy, it made me just a little bit more miserable, a little bit more sick, and a little bit more fat. And <laughs> in all of it, I was rooted in this upbringing that I had as a prepper when we didn't call it being a prepper. I grew up in a poor family, coal region, Pennsylvania. We had all of the things we think of as preparedness items because, well, if the power went out in the winter and you didn't, you were really freaking cold. I mean, it was that, it was that simple. We grew a garden because, well, food's expensive. We went hunting because, well, food's expensive. And and that was always a grounding. And it pulled me back through all of this systems level thinking. I started doing my podcast back in 2008. So I've been doing it almost 13 years now. And as soon as I did that, I, I found permaculture. And permaculture became kind of my guiding principle that I built my business on, even though it's about something that seems different. And, and now I've been doing that about 12 years. So I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's an answer to your question leading in. No, that's fine, Jack. That's that that's actually really good because that brings us uh, right into uh, permaculture. Um, you know, I've, I've got Bill Mollison's that, that tome. It sits on my nightstand staring at me going, dude, you couldn't even make it halfway through, huh? Because I get like, I, I get... I start looking at the, at the diagrams in this thing, the, the, you know, the pictures, this, the, they're You're talking about the designer manual. Yeah. The permaculture design man, designers manual. And that thing, I mean, just, I can just get lost in looking at some of the figures because of what this really means. So that leads me to the question, what is permaculture? And more importantly, and I don't mean to sound uncaring the way yeah. that this is asked, but why should we care? Okay. Uh, permaculture is a system, a systems level design science is the best way to think about it. So when people first find permaculture, they tend to see two things. One, hippies rolling around in the mud. We'll just call those people purple breathers and say that's really not what the whole thing was built on. Uh, or they see it as, you know, like organic gardening, maybe at another level or something like that. What permaculture really is, is let's step back and look at how humans exist. Let's work with nature rather than against it. Let's design systems that provide all the things that humans need from a closed loop system that can sustain itself and actually regenerate itself so that the land actually gets better, but so do the humans. Now, 
that's a very simplified version of, but you know, why should you care? Well, because that, right? So the, 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 the mm-hmm. fact that we can actually design systems that in of themselves are not just sustainable, but regenerative of the things that humans need to survive and thrive is a pretty good reason to care about it. Mm. No, no, I, I get, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I get it, but it's like, I've, yeah. you know, I've run into people where I say, I say the word permaculture and then they go, huh? Yeah. They, and, and then I, I try to just touch on it. Just, I mean, real gently, you know, yeah. I, I, I've been in the, in the Bitcoin discussions with people saying, oh, it's the greatest thing, whatever. And then they look at you sideways and you kind of learn to not get so heavy handed and permaculture is sort of the same thing. They, they, I, I get looked at sideways and that's one of the reasons why, you know, it's better if somebody else tells yeah. other people why you should care, especially with somebody that's got, you know, the experience that you have and you, you do have quite a bit of experience, i.e. your property up there in North Texas. And I kind of want to ask you, you know, when, when we talk about permaculture, as an example, you've done quite a bit of permaculture things upon your your land. Um, could you kind of go through some of the things that you've done to yeah. your particular piece of Eden there? Yeah, I am. I, I, I've jokingly called myself a, a, a rock masochist. I, I, I want to grow food and I want very vibrant properties. So I tend to buy properties with no soil on them which is very counterintuitive. But I mean, seriously, we found this place because it was a steal economically and it gave us all of the infrastructure we needed to do the things that we wanted to do. We wanted some land and we wanted land that laid nice. So I looked at properties that were, you know, this is a three acre property. I looked at properties that were eight acres that were less usable than this property because they were a long, narrow strip along a road, right? So this was a nice, beautiful laid out, rectangle it was fenced and cross fenced it had outbuildings one huge outbuilding one kind of mid like i'm talking when i say huge i'm like an 1800 square foot insulated steel outbuilding 800 mm. square foot steel outbuilding uh 2500 square foot house and i paid 205 for it right so i mean like when you find that it had some things that need to be done but when you find that in this area that's a steal so we, we settled on this property but nothing would grow. When I say nothing, I mean, I literally threw out plantain and dandelion seed that did not grow. It was, <laughs> it was desolate. There are places where there is two inches of soil and then it is rock slab. And so you wonder, how do you transform that? Well, you do it with trees and you do it with animals. And so we, we looked at it and said, okay, this, this property cannot support cattle. And I don't want to hate my life. So we will not do goats. And mm-hmm. some people love goats, but most people who get goats eventually kill them and eat them. And then they feel much better about goats by getting rid of them. So I decided I would do something completely insane. And I put 150 ducks on my property. <laughs> yeah. And then we manage them like cattle. We actually put small, because ducks you can fence in with a little two foot fence. So we put movable fencing in. And we put them in one area for a week and another area for a week and another area for a week. We fed them really high quality food. We did some plantings. We did earthworks, which is something we can talk a little bit more about if if we need to. Um, But in a few years, we caused this property to turn green. 
we caused things to start growing that like, I didn't plant that. Where did that come from? And they're basically natural seed banks. Most people Mm -hmm. don't realize this, but there's literally a square foot of soil. There's probably 10,000 seeds there that aren't growing right now. They're there and they're looking for germination triggers, either disturbance or compaction or fertility or moisture or temperature. Something will trigger that germination. Some of those seeds can lay there for 10, 20, 30 more years without germinating. And we think that they're really fragile, but they actually are nature's original survivors. And all of that started to kick in. And then we built a lot of other systems. We built aquaponic systems. We built systems that are based on aquaculture, which are more of small ponds that are done in a raised uh, fashion uh, timber frame because I can't actually put a hole in the ground here because it is a, a slab of rock. And we've turned the property around to the point where when a uh, very well-known uh, restoration agriculturist and permaculturist, Mark Shepard, took a look at the before and after uh, on the property of uh, the three-quarter acre food forest we put in on our eastern edge, he asked me to write the forward in his book. He was mm-hmm. like, I, I can't believe that you did that. Like, he knew what the property was and where it went. And it's not something you can explain to somebody in a, in a short individual podcast how to do the important thing is that it can be done, that, that natural systems do respond to our guidance. And, and that's another big part of what, what permaculture is really about, is understanding that it's not about just go out, get a bunch of trees and plant them. Because if you plant them in a place where nature can't support them yet, then all you do is spend money on dead sticks. And, yeah. And you, so you have to think about the fertility of the soil. You have to think about how to encourage life. And sometimes that means you have to do something first, like dump fertility for a few years from a giant flock of ducks. And if you think about 150 ducks weighs about 750 pounds, which would be three quarters of a cattle unit. Yeah. So that's what we did is we put a duck cattle unit on our property and then we, we sold duck eggs to fund their existence. We didn't make a ton of money off of them, but we had you know high-end restaurants buying our product, and we used that to fund a lot of what we did here. And it, it, it's pretty amazing now. People come here, and the people that are most blown away, like people come here and go, this is really cool. The people that come here and go, holy crap, are the ones that came here the first year. Yeah. And now they come here, and there's fo- little forests of productive things growing out of every dadgone place on the property. It's... Um, it's a testament to what can be done. And Mollison's original idea in Permaculture One, the, the first book that he released, was exactly this. That if you have really arable, perfect agricultural land for now, just use it that way. Permaculture was designed to see the opportunities where others did not. How to take the unproductive into the productive. And then coupled with it is the concept that we design for one example, in zones, where do people spend their time? So if you have a garden that requires maintenance, it doesn't belong on your back fence. It belongs right out your back door. That would be your zone one. It's the thing you need to rely on every day. Maybe the wood piles in a zone two, a little further out. And we design around what we're looking for, working with nature, but also natural human activity. We might design certain things that need to be looked at daily along a pathway to a duck coop or a chicken coop, because we're going to go let them out every day. So we kind of create this little peninsula of a zone one out to letting those birds out every day. Then maybe we install something like a compost pit and we throw all our waste in there. We let the birds actually process it to do the work for us. All of these things are 
tactics and techniques in permaculture, when you say like trying to explain it to people and they glaze over, well, like the number one rule of marketing is never use a word that your market doesn't know unless you have a really good reason. Like it's so, so quirky that they're going to be intrigued and permaculture probably isn't that. (laughs) So I tend to say, you know, we do, we do natural gardening. We, we install edible landscaping, whatever the person you're speaking to, whatever their lingo is, you use that. And eventually you can kind of trick them into, well, how do I do all this? Well, let me tell you about permaculture. If you want someone to take an idea in, get them to give you permission to talk about it. Right. So when you say you're on a rock slab, you literally are on a rock slab insofar as aren't you on like a limestone escarpment or something like that? Yeah, we're on a, a limestone formation. Uh, that basically, the house sits on a saddle. So it's the one thing that design was done right here with is they put the house on the highest point of the property. So at least they did that. Um, right. And it kind of sheds all four directions from there. But right through the middle, then the reason it's the high point is underneath the soil, what, what there is of it is a, is a rock formation that was part of probably what you would consider a reef under what was known as the Great Inland Sea, you know, millions and millions of years ago, where there was actually the, the whole center of the United States was under the ocean. So when I say yeah. slab, people think rock, like you dig up, and there's a chunk of rock here and a chunk. I know, no rock. Like there's about four inches of soil. Then there is rock that's kind of chunky, but there's no soil in it. You can like with an excavator, you can break it and pull it out. And after two feet of that, you have compressed flat. I mean, like you could make a sarcophagus out of it, limestone. The chunky part on the top, when you break it out, you can literally see seashells. So even though yeah. I'm 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 near Fort Worth, we're nowhere near an ocean. You can see seashells and nautiluses and and little crustaceans and things like that in the rock. It literally looks like concrete that was made out of seashells instead of gravel. And that's yeah. basically what it is. That's what we're that's what we're doing this on. Yeah, and so when you're planting a tree like you know in your case when you were saying, "Oh, I'm just going to throw out a bunch of, you know, what eventually will become dead sticks." you know, a tree needs to be able to send down roots and you can't really do that through a limestone slab yet. Your property has quite a few trees on that. And you did that through the functionality of what's called a swale. That's if I'm getting that right. There's a part of it that we did that with. I mean, so first of all, there are trees here that are native, like they're live oaks and stuff. And these are trees that are probably by looking at the rings in them, they're probably 70 years old. And they're the size of, of a typical live oak that might be 15 to 20. They naturally yeah. dwarf because of what they can do. But even those trees, what they do is those fractures in the rock, they actually get their roots into those fractures. And then whenever you, you deal with plant material and you deal with the natural reactions through what's called exudates, and that's plants take little little bits of, of moisture and globules and they, they put them out of the roots and they're basically sugar and and carbohydrate, basically carbohydrate and, and fat and nutrient that attract little soil critters, right? Mm-hmm. So the, if the tree needs selenium, it'll actually do an exudate that will attract the soil critter, little microbes that will produce selenium in their poop, and it'll actually attract them. It's like a it's like a, a, a deal that they make, and so those yeah. little soil critters will come and they'll they'll feed on that exudate and they'll do a, a, an exchange of nutrients. Well, when all of that, to, to simplify this, when all of that occurs, one of the byproducts of that is humic acid, 
Well, if you have limestone, you have a base. And we've all played with, you know, baking soda and vinegar. So you know yeah. what happens when those two things go together. So that humic acid actually begins to eat the rock. And the trees actually begin to eat the rock through their interaction with their exudates and the soil microbes. And this, this rock, when you uncover it and the trees have gotten their roots into it for a time, it goes from a bleach white to kind of an orangey yellow. And I, I have mm-hmm. pieces of it where you we actually pick it up and you can take it in your hands. And I mean, this stuff, you'll break the handle of a sledgehammer on a year ago. And once that acid really gets in there, you can take your hands and break it with your hands. And once those trees get into that rock, they start to actually build soil through the decomposition of their own root systems down inside those fractures. And so we want pioneering trees to come in first and then other trees can go behind them and they follow those roots that have died off from your pioneers. We call that a fast carbon pathway. Now what you're asking about are swales. So we did that on the part of the property that had about 10 inches of soil. That was deep for us, right? Because I can't dig a swale in the rock itself. Then I would have a giant pile of rubble, not soil. So we had about a three-quarter acre area that made sense for this. A swale is a ditch, but on contour, meaning unlike most ditches you're familiar with where water goes in the ditch and moves down the ditch, the ditch is level. So we take some sort of level finding device like an A-frame, or in my case, I used a rotary laser level, and we mark a contour line, and we dig that ditch on that contour. We take the soil out of the ditch, we put it on the downhill side, even though it seems very, very flat, there is a downhill side of that contour. That gives us a mound, and that mound now, if we took 10 inches out and we laid it on top of 10 inches, now we got 20 inches. Now we got something to work with. We plant trees into that mound, We plant trees in front of that mound, and we plant trees behind the ditch itself. And probably for every one productive tree we put in, we're putting in 15 trees that are designed to die, and and, and we want those to be nitrogen fixers, fast-growing, very hardy. And we use a, a technique called chop and drop. So that tree starts to grow. We cut it down. It grows back. We cut it down again, and we take everything we cut off it, and we drop it down and let it form new soil. And eventually, of those you know, 15 to 1 ratio, you're probably going to have maybe two of those 15 survive as long-term part of the overstory. The rest of them die. Well, all those roots they put in the ground die. And then at your productive trees, which are planted right next to them, it looks way too dense when you start out. They follow the pathways of those dying roots. So the pioneer goes first, it gets shot in the back, think of it that way, it dies, uh-huh. and then the settler comes from behind. And that's part of what we did here. A lot there's there's it it's eight years of work at this point. Explaining it all in brevity is is really not possible. Uh, no, no, it's completely impossible. But one of the things, because I've been, you know, I've been following what I, I gotta I, I gotta tell you, one of the things that I always enjoyed about the YouTube channel. Uh, when you're posting up videos that you're taking on your phone is the property walks during a rainstorm. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching these very long ditches that are on contour, holding massive amounts of water, you know, ducks are swimming and playing and just having, you know, doing what ducks do, I guess, you know, pooping in the water and, and having fun. And they'd stay that I think you were saying that they'd stay that way for like three or four days. And before mosquitoes could take hold, it was all over. 
but now it's different. Yep. As of late, those swales don't hold water for, well, how long do they hold water for now? Because it ain't three or four days. No, it depends. Like, so if you get enough rain long enough, like sometimes in our spring, we get crazy, you know, deluge monsoons in like May. So if you get three or four days in a row of rain, you really super, super hydrate everything. It can last a few days after the rain stops before it fully dries up. But when we first put them in, it was literally the day we put them in. We did a workshop. We had students here. We got the excavator out of the way because it was going to be a mud hole. Rain came in. I mean, literally the boom on the excavator went down to rest mode. And and we got about an inch of rain. Wow. That inch of rain filled and overflowed all three swales. And then they held water for about a day. And that was only an inch of rain. Then... As, as time progressed, we got trees and et cetera. You know, if you got a good rain event, like an inch, inch and a half of rain, if the ground was wet before it happened, they would hold water two or three or four days. Now uh, we can get an inch and a half of rain and you go out there and there's no water in them at all. Now, that would seem to suggest that all the trees that you've put in have sort of broken the back a lot like or broken those three spines in, in the formation is is that correct, correct or am i looking at no, it wrong you're, you're absolutely right they have they have broken fractures into the rock so the water that used to sit there and slowly per because it, it, it only had you know 10 to 11 inches of soil to hold it before it hit rock and the rock was mostly impermeable even to water and that hydrated the whole landscape now you got to be careful. Like this is something like you don't just watch videos on YouTube of this and go start putting swales in. First of all, do they even make sense there? And second of all, what are you doing? If I had right. done this on a steep slope at a slightly larger scale, that super hydration of that thin soil probably would have took the whole side of the mountain down. Mm-hmm. This is on very flat soil. So it had time to work. And I'm not saying you can't do it in those places. You might have to do it a little bit differently. And as you get bigger things, you might want an engineer checking your sanity. In in this instance, that water super hydrated. It slowly permeated to the actual ditch and went down the road. And over time, it got into those rocks. It fractured them. It broke them. And now it takes about an inch and a half to two inches of, of, of rain event to fill them. If you get that, that water will seep into the ground over about eight hours. If you get a four-inch rain event, you might be there a while, but it, it doesn't matter. It all is now water going into the system that was before leaving. So part of the problem was the land was being eroded by rain events. It was literally taking everything with it because the water couldn't get in the ground. So if it can't get in the ground, it goes across the ground. When we put these these three big swales in that you're talking about, you've seen in the videos, they hold about 28,000 gallons of water when they're full. Yeah, And the fact that they fill from one inch didn't change. The space and the runoff is the same. So when you get an inch and you see no water in the swale, except a little puddle here and there, that same 28,000 gallons went in there. It just now went in the ground instead of across the ground and down the road into a, into a river. Now it's right. in the property. So what we're doing is we're storing the water in the ground where it belongs. And, and that's done, it's, a, it's an incredibly primitive but sophisticated technology, the swale. My one thing we're talking so much about swales that I always worry about is people see permaculture, they see swales, they say, 
Permaculture is swales. I need property and I need swales. Maybe, maybe not. The swale is a, is a, is a tactic. It's a technique. It's within the disciplined science of permaculture, and it doesn't go everywhere. People say, well, I have, it rains, you know, 60 inches a, a year here, and it's all sand and everything grows on it. Okay, don't put a swale in there. Yeah. Right? Unless you're, if you're putting a pond in, you want to increase your catchment, great idea. But if, if, if you don't need swales, don't do it. And also think about where they go. You don't want to design access out of your, out of your property. That's the other thing I've seen happen with swales. People put swales in end to end. Okay, now how do I get a vehicle through? Well, maybe you shouldn't have done what you did. You know, I mean, yeah. you, get, we, 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 you want to look at your property from uh, three things or more, but three main things when you go into a property, water access structure. How is water going to move and be held and, and be transported across this property and infiltrated? Uh, access, how am I going to get materials and people and things in and out of this property, doing the least damage to it? And structure, where will my buildings and dwellings go? And, and you got to look at those together, or we end up designing things like ideal structure locations or access to them out of the design. And that's bad design. Right. And what, you know, just to, to pound at home, you know, to the, to the listener is that before you got there, that house was already there. There was somebody who built it. So there was somebody living there. They didn't do this. So all the water is basically shedding off. You get there, same property. You do things, reach for stuff, look at things. And all of a sudden, instead of water running away, water stays there. Correct. So now in a dry, relatively arid part of the United States, where the guy next door to you is probably looks very dry. Mm -hmm. You are not very dry because you've been able to save all the water instead of letting it run off. And I think that that's, you know, that's one tiny piece of designing when, when we start looking at, at landscapes and it feel, I know that there's been at least a couple of people who have like looked at me and said, when I've talked about permaculture, that there's a hubris involved, like, oh, like you think you can do it better. And I don't think that that's the point. I think the point is, is that humans are a function on top of the land in which they dwell. And we forgot just damn near how to deal with it. It's how, not how to, not how to deal with it, Jack, sort of like how to be a part of it. How, to, yeah. like we've completely separated ourselves that are no longer integrated into getting in the dirt, looking at rocks. What, how does this tree make sense here? You know, for, you know, because I'm just, I just have just as much right to be on the land as the tree and us together, like humans in the land working in, in concert, some really beautiful things can happen. And, and you proved it on your property because I've seen pictures of your property before, after, and your neighbor's property. I, I keep freaking out. I mean, I'm like, Jesus, I don't know how this happens. It's amazing, especially in like spring when everything comes back to life naturally in the area and everything starts to green up in the whole area on its own. And you come driving down the road and the green here almost looks unnatural because it's so different that, and this is, you know, the good time of year. This is when the neighbor stuff is growing because we get a lot of rain here. We get around 48 inches a year. That's a lot. We just get it kind of all in one wet season and then we'll go months without a drop. And since the soil's thin, everything dries out in a week, and then you go three months without rain. That's yeah. what makes it difficult. We have 
that we, you know, people think in, in northern climates, like everything stops growing in their winter. Here, everything stops growing in our summers. But uh, the original thing you brought up about hubris, permaculture is anti-hubris, right? It's not that I'm better. It's that I need to accept feedback from the land. So there are certain things that when I moved here, in my ego, I was going to prove they could grow here. And you know what? If I really kept at it, I could find a way to make it work. I can put something on life support. But eventually yeah. the land tells you, you know what? You don't want to do that. And you can either accept that, which requires, you know, a humility and an acceptance that nature is in control, or you can try to dominate nature. So permaculture actually is a place of the school of thought where, look at it this way. If you go into um, martial arts training, especially very traditional Eastern martial arts, you have to go to your, your teacher, your sensei with a certain level of humility, or they won't even work with you. Right. Your cup is full, get out the door type of, of, of thinking, uh, uh, you yeah. know, kind of said Buddhism. And so if you are a student of someone, you have to go to the teacher with a level of humility. Well, our greatest teacher in permaculture is not Bill Mollison or Jeff Lawton or Mark Shepard or, God forbid, Jack Spearco. Our greatest teacher, and every true permaculture will tell you this, is the forest. When we are at a point where we're not sure what we can do next, go into the forest and observe the forest and let the forest be your teacher. Understand the forest floor is a lake, things like that. So you have to put yourself in a position where nature is the master and you're the student. And the minute you've done that, you the, the entire idea that you're better or you can force has to leave. You almost have to enter into the concept if, if you want if you want a true answer, start with no opinion. And, and that is the mindset that, that we at least we should be coming at this with. Now, we all as human beings fall short of our ideals at times and we decide, hey, I'm going to do this. But nature kicks you in the ass and straightens you out on that really, really quickly. It yeah, it, it does. But what you what you were saying about looking at nature and and the way that I, the way that I rephrase it is like weeds. People get just, I mean, the Karen down the street mm. hates them. Just it's, it's a needle in their mind and they just can't get it, you know, can't get it out. And what getting into this whole thing taught me was like, well, wait a minute. If you eradicate those things, you're missing part of the story. And the, and the land can tell you these stories, you know, for example, uh, my wife, you know, my family moved to the house. We live in, in the Panhandle in Texas, uh, over there in, in, over here in the Amarillo area. Now we're in a rural community. I didn't move to Amarillo. It's the world's largest truck stop. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but uh, we, we moved out here. And the first summer that we were here, I got taken over by, I mean, huge masses of amaranth in this one patch. Okay. Now, Am amaranth was kind of everywhere but not like in this one patch and I'm looking at it and I'm just like, I'm not going to touch it. I'm going to let that son of a bitch grow throughout the entire summer. And it did. And Oh my God, when I had to hack that shit down, <laughs> I, I hated myself, but it, but it worked because the next summer there wasn't half the amount of amaranth growing in that same, in that same part. And of course, when I took it out, I, I literally mowed over it and just left it there. 
And then the next, like that, like I said, the next summer, not even half came back and they were much, the ones that did were much smaller. I let them grow. I did the same shit. Now in that very same spot, amaranth won't grow. And I know it's because of all the, the fact that amaranth is a pioneer species and it, I just let it go. I let it tell me the story of, and that story was this little pot piece of your backyard is so jacked up, dude, that you're really going to let me, you're going to, it's like a masseuse. I'm going to work this son of a bitch over. It fertilized, and it, it, did. it fertilized itself to death with its own bodies, right? It doesn't, it, gr- it doesn't grow. Like it, it, it specifically a type of, you're talking about like pigweed amaranth, wild amaranth. It doesn't yeah. grow in fertile soil. So, yep. so this is the mindset that most people have, the Karen would have, right? Okay, there's an infertile place, nothing will grow except these weeds, so I'm going to kill the weeds and plant grass. Well, the grass uh-huh. is going to die because it yep. can't grow there unless we fertilize it with artificial fertility and irrigate it because there's no fertility there. But So, you, so the other solution, the natural solution of the person that's a little more enlightened but not fully would be, well, mulch it. So we're going to go down the road to a materials place and pay good money for someone who used a lot of energy to cut down plant material and bring it to a place where they chopped it up and put it in a bag or the back of your truck. You're going to haul it to that location and unload it. When amaranth's growing there, guess what that is? Mulch. That's what you did with it. You cut it down and you let it go to mulch. And there's other ways you could have handled it. You know, where you live, maybe this wasn't possible, but one thing you could do, you know what loves amaranth? Pigs. So you could have literally yeah. sent pigs in, like fence a pig in there, and they'll eat it and crap it out. That would even be better. Goats would eat it. Again, I I love goats as long as they're not mine. Um, yeah. But goats, any ruminant that would eat amaranth, cattle would eat amaranth. So instead of like if you have a like people say, well, he had a small place, right? And you did, but if if you had mm. acres of that, graze it. And if you graze it in a holistic grazing pattern where we move the cattle daily, we don't overgraze, we graze about one-third and move on, the, the process you observe, we can accelerate and improve. All of these plants that we think of as being problems are nature's reparative mechanisms. You can you right. talk about telling a story. So if you know that a particular weed is really good at, at mining a nutrient – that nutrient, you would think that that means, okay, if this thing is really good at mining um, selenium, that that means there's lots of selenium there where it's growing. No, it's selenium deficient, but it's able to get the selenium. There's there's more selenium in a tablespoon of that dirt than your plants could need in a quarter of an acre, in, in all honesty. Mm-hmm. It's a very small amount of that micronutrients necessary. However, it's not bioavailable. That weed is there. Because it can get it through its exudation process when more tender plants that you have you consider more desirable cannot. So nature sends it to fix it. If you have really loose soil, you'll get weeds that are very hairnet. They hold the soil together. If you get very compacted soil, you'll get weeds with deep tap roots that drive down into it. Literally, nature will give you what you need. Now, the one place we have to be careful here, you can be too fanciful with this. In permaculture, we say there are no weeds. But there are plants that will choke out the plants you want to grow. So there are times to to put some control mechanisms in. But in general, when you have land where nothing grows except this one thing, use that thing to improve the fertility instead of bringing an input in from offsite, if that makes sense. 
No, it, it makes complete sense. And I think where it break. well, I was about to say where it breaks down and that's not, that's not what I mean, but for lack of a better phrase, where that breaks down is in the, is in the eye of the beholder. Sure. Anybody else looking at this mass of amaranth, uh, they're looking at it like, how do you, how do you live with yourself? How do you wake up, come out in your backyard, drink coffee and go, Oh, that's beautiful. And I'm like, I can't explain why, <laughs> but it is, I, I, I wouldn't want it there forever. And it doesn't have to be, I just need it to do its job because it, it either is going to do the job for me, or I got to do the job myself. You couldn't make it. That. You couldn't make it stay there forever. If you tried, yeah. You wouldn't be able to make that kind of a wild, clumpy, self-regenerating amaranth grow in that spot nonstop for eternity if you employed every system that you could design to control it. Because what you're doing then is you're fighting secession. Everything in our natural system moves toward a system of eventual, uh, an eventual summit, right? It moves to a point of, of where it reaches its highest pinnacle and then it goes into decline and it recycles. What you're observing there, if you did nothing, assuming that the climate's right for it, if you did absolutely nothing, that area will become forest of some sort. Yeah, it always successes, successes to forest. And, and another thing along these lines, which is one of the things that caused me to you know, like I was saying at the, at the beginning of this, that caused me to kind of get into Bitcoin was I came in through the permaculture region, ag, all that stuff. And I kept hearing about st things like Nassim Taleb's books, uh, things called time horizons. Do you have a short time horizon? Do you have a long time horizon? And so by the time I hit Bitcoin, where guess what? All that stuff is the same stuff that I learned on, on the permaculture side is being talked about in the Bitcoin circles on their side, which leads me to what's called edge effect. And if you would be so kind, could you explain your version of what edge effect is? I don't know that I have my version. I guess maybe my way of explaining it. So I, I don't, yeah, it's not my theory, right? Edge, edge theory is something that's well known in many scientific circles. Permaculturists just tend to harness it and it's that all abundance is along an edge. And so if you look at a typical scene that you can observe throughout kind of, kind of the edges of suburban America, where you have fields that are not really maintained, and then you have kind of foresty woodlots, you have it, it, every kid that's ever gone into a woodlot like that knows that you go through the field, that's easy. When you get inside the woods, you can kind of move around easy. But the place you kind of tear yourself up a bit if you and your friends haven't made a path yet is the edge between the field and the forest. That's where the brambles are. That's where the vines are. That's where you experience what it's, you know, all seven layers of a forest system from canopy to the rhizomial layer all in one place. And, and, and so when we design permaculture systems, we design edge into the system to create abundance. But this is not something that you have to design to observe. Uh, nature has its own edges everywhere. Like one I just described was an edge. We didn't design that. Maybe we, maybe man had a hand in it and they, they, they plowed this field and stopped taking care of it and a forest emerged and that edge, but nobody designed it. But you can see right. this as di dynamic edges, even with something like if you go to a lake, you might see some guys in a boat fishing and it looks like they're in the middle of the lake. 
like they're nowhere near the shoreline. Everybody stands edge and shoreline and the bass boat guy is along the edge. But you see these guys sit in the middle of the lake and they're catching fish. You see another guy motor his boat out with no idea what's going on. He's only 25 feet away. He's using the same bait. He catches no fish. Well, the guys that are catching fish, maybe they're over a hump. Well, mm-hmm. that hump is now, it's a vertical edge within the water column. Or maybe there's a school of bait fish following a, a, a plankton cloud. That's an edge. The bait fish become an edge. And, and then the predator fish exist along the edge of the bait fish. And this pattern repeats itself in nature. It repeats itself in almost everything that humans design. If you look at where is the, the, the greatest productivity, uh, in, even in an urban situation, often if we're, if we're measuring productivity by economic output, Right. Then then maybe it's in the urban center. But if we're measuring it by people and interactions and, and, and plants and gardens, well, your greatest abundance in an urban environment is in the suburban beltway around it. It's its own form of edge. Everywhere that humans interact, you'll find an, an interactive edge. Again, this is this is what's known as a universal pattern. That once you understand it and you understand how to recognize the pattern, you can't help but see it in everything that you do. As a podcaster, you have an interactive edge. You have a large number of people that listen, but the most engagement happens between the people that are closest to you. And then they create a secondary edge kind of as your fan spreading your information out to others. And you can just keep going. That edge is everywhere. Right. So... Generally, or generally speaking, I guess is like you've got an area of like life form set A rubbing up against a life form set B, and right on that, in, right where they connect, you get like this synergy from both of these systems, and that's where I come in with the next question that may be impossible to answer in this particular context of, of permaculture, but. Um, I re- this whole entire podcast is named Bitcoin and mm-hmm. dot 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 or ellipses because it's Bitcoin and something else. There's all there's there are other things. It's not all about Bitcoin. And I wanted to design this podcast where I was examining the edge effect where two where any two systems, one of which is always Bitcoin, rubs up against another system. Is there any edge effect in your mind that you can see or pull out between Bitcoin? And permaculture as a design science. Well, let's look at the edge effect in in Bitcoin and, and instead of immediately trying to combine it with with permaculture and just see the edge that you were asking about. So if if you look at Bitcoin from a standpoint of miners mine Bitcoin, people buy Bitcoin and people hold Bitcoin and hope it goes up in value, you may not see a huge amount of edge. I can make a stretch for an edge effect there. But I'm not going to bother. We'll let if this goes deep enough in the brains of your listeners, they can do that for themselves. Kind of a project, right? right? But let's if we actually use Bitcoin for its intended purpose that Satoshi designed it for, Satoshi or Satoshis, we don't really know, right? Um, Right. Then we have Bitcoin, and it is consolidated in the possession of an individual who, who acquires it either by mining or receiving it and then conducts commerce with it. That commerce itself is an interactive edge. So the abundance comes in an economic system when two or more parties begin to conduct commerce with each other. That's what creates abundance. That's what creates the desire of one individual 
to ex- exert work of some form so that the so that the other individual will tender some sort of compensation for it so all economic activity exists along multiple edges every single member within an economic system that chooses to do business voluntarily with another member creates yet another edge and then those edges almost move into almost like trophic cascades eventually where you have certain communities that develop around a certain concept. Maybe it's fans of a podcast that become members of their membership program, or maybe fans of a musician that buy their product. The fact that we've switched it from dollars to Bitcoin or to Ethereum or to any other cryptocurrency, privacy coins, whatever, has no bearing on the fact that you still have that interactive now economic edge. And, and then, so if we're taking it to, you want to take it to permaculture, we're taking it to, I start doing pastured poultry and I'm selling my product for, for a cryptocurrency. Not only do we have an economic edge, now we have a natural edge and some form of abundance that's being created in my production of a commodity that I'm selling to you for Bitcoin. And if you started thinking about mining, you would probably be able to pretty quickly be able to define how nodes act as edges in the verifying of transactions to produce and mine the next level of wealth out of a cryptocurrency. Like, again, this is, this is such an intrinsically natural pattern that anywhere that any form of abundance is created, you'll find at least two things interacting to create an edge. You'll never find abundance coming from a single thing with no interaction with another thing. Right. Right. And so on, on that note, I kind of want to switch because generally speaking, you, I mean, you know, you know about permaculture, you talk about on your podcast, but that wasn't the impetus that started your podcast, which is the survival podcast. That was more about preparedness, right? It was about preparedness, but I'm a marketer. And I'm not dumb. <laughs> and, and, and I know that if I'm going to market an idea, that I need a hook. And if I had started this show in 2008 and called it to the Lifestyle Design Podcast, I probably would still be doing something else. Because I uh-huh. don't think it had enough of a hook. People hadn't really switched on to people like Tim Ferriss as much yet or whatever. And Lifestyle Design was not a thing that anybody was looking for. Now, the thing about if you're designing a life properly, you're designing redundancy into your life. So preparedness was always something that was very important to me, again, because I grew up in a place where if you weren't prepared, you suffered. And it was also the concept that if you're going to build abundance into your life, then you must build non-brittleness and resiliency into your life at the same time. You can be incredibly wealthy, and if you haven't done that, you can lose everything that you have. So we, we talk about preparedness from a standpoint of dealing with a storm or dealing with a pandemic, right? Because everybody thought you were crazy. I was crazy about that until this year. Um, <laughs> but we also talk about it with like boring things like insurance. Like if you have, if you, if you, you know, I, I actually knew a guy one time. He's like, yeah, well, I finally paid off my house. So I canceled my, uh, my fire insurance. Oh, what? Or people pay off their oh. car. So they, you know. And they drop their 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 coverage of their own vehicle, right? Now, if you if you're driving a three hundred dollar hoopty, I get it, right? But if you have a, a car with significant underlying replacement value, you probably want to maintain insurance on it, right? So, I, I just take the insurance concept 
and expand it out to assurance. So you can't really afford to insure everything in your life from every type of loss. But what you can do is build redundancy into your lifestyle so that if you suffer a loss, something else compensates for it or the loss itself is mitigated because the item itself has some level of protection. So with Bitcoin, one of the first things you teach people what is what? Back up your wallet, right? Because if you lose right. it, it's gone. So just take that approach and expand it to your entire life. Back up your life. So what would be the top five things in preparedness that, I don't know, so let's take urban setting. Like your your general urban guy, two bedroom house or three or four bedroom house, you know, what would be the top five things that that they could approach doing to feel a little bit safer? Not feel, but, you know, have some backup. Where, where would your backups be on that? Well, I mean, what you want to do is it doesn't matter where you are. You, you want to focus on your, your primary survival needs. So if you go to a wilderness survival course, they're going to teach you it's food, water, fire, uh, security. Um, and, and shelter, right? Those are the, the five that you need. So all we're going to do is we're going to change fire to energy because that's what fire represents in that wilderness setting. And we're going to add a sixth need, which is health and sanitation. So you sit down with those. Those are your primary needs in life. You have to eat. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to hydrate yourself. You have to be able to shelter yourself. You have to have energy to be able to accomplish things. You have to have security, and security is the one that is the most overlooked because it's the one that we can do without for the longest period of time until we need it. And what I mean by that is, okay, so how long can you go without water? Oh, you can go for three days without water. In general, that would be true. Like if it's 150 degrees out, maybe not, but in general, you can go about three days without, without water. You can go for uh, practically a single nanosecond without security if you need it, and you're dead, right? Because one bullet to the head, you're dead. But we can go through our whole lives without thinking about security at all because to some degree it's provided for us and and because of another degree of most people aren't actually out trying to kill you, right? So you you end up with a certain number of people that just don't want to hurt you, and then the scumbags have a little bit of fear because most most people – I, I'm believing this less and less, but I'd like to believe most people, if they saw somebody hurting you, would intervene if they felt that they could. And, and scumbags know this. So we need to think about that That first one is security. How secure are you? Because when problems happen, security goes down. We also need to think about eat, being able to eat. So what happened when the pandemic lockdown started? People ran out and bought up all the dry goods, and then people bought up yeah. all the shelf-stable items. And then people bought up all the fresh items and people brought up all the meat and it became competitive to where people freaked out and bought more than they needed even to stock up. Right. Preppers didn't, we didn't care. We're whatever. We're fine. You know, so food, I would say that everybody should try to get to a position where you can at least go a month without going to the grocery store. I prefer 90 days. If you have 90 days of food reserves, and something like the pandemic did in the spring happens, you got 90 days before you need to worry. But if you actually start to resupply now, just maybe not in panic mode, you can extend that 90 days to six months real easy while everybody else is scraping to make the 90-day threshold. 
And as we've seen, that'll get you through most things. So food storage is, is a huge thing. And I suggest people start with eat what you store and store what you eat. Start with a make a list. Instead of worrying about like, you know, Jack Spirico says to go buy rice and beans. Not if you don't eat them. Right. Yeah. Now, if, now, look, rice and beans and you know grains, best long term, absolute end of the world storage items you can get. So if you want to fill up 10 buckets of rice, 10 buckets of beans and 10 buckets of wheat, it's cheap. Throw them in a five gallon bucket, throw a hand warmer in there. It's a, it's a, basically a hand warmer is an O2 absorber. They, they work the same way. So you get the cheap hand warmers at the end of the season from the uh, sporting goods department and you throw them in there with it. And, and that stuff will last 25 years, throw it in your basement. You've, you've got that day to day, make that list. What do you eat? What do you eat often? And what is storable without refrigeration? Make that list, put check marks and stars by it. As you go through that, develop that shopping list. And the next time you go to the store, this item that you usually buy two of buy four of it. The next time you go to the store, buy four of it again. And when you have a month or two supply of it, move on to the next item or two and keep doing that until you build up that storage. Then expand your food storage to be things that need to be frozen. So it got really hard, by the way, this year to get a chest freezer or a deep freezer, but a deep freezer and and a, uh, a generator capable of running that plus your refrigerator for a few hours a day. And, you know, then start storing gasoline. I think this makes sense for everybody. My general, as long as you have the space for it, it can be done safely, 60 gallons of gas. And that's because gas gas cans are five gallons and there's 12 months in a year. So you go to the store, you buy a gas can or two. This is uh, December. You take a Sharpie, you write 12 on your gas can. When you go fill your car up, fill your gas can up too. Next month, take the, get a new gas can, write one on it. That's for January. Fill up the car, fill up the gas can. When you end up, and you can go faster if you want to, if you have the money, but you can phase into this over a year. Now you got gas cans sitting one through 12. You've got 60 gallons of gas. The oldest gas you have is a year old. You don't even need stable at that point. Pick up this, you know, now it's December again. Pick up the can with the 12 on it. Dump it in your car. Throw it in the trunk. Take it to the gas station when you fill up the car. Fill the gas can up. Take it home. Put it back in the line. Really super simple. Energy, like solar panels and all that, great if you ever get there. But a generator, gasoline, start using rechargeable double A's and triple A's and everything in your home that uses double A's and triple A's except your smoke alarms because you don't want those to die on you. Get a good battery recharger. Get yourself, like they make C-cell and D-cell, they're like little cases. You throw two double A's in them and then that can go in a D-cell battery with two double A's substituting for a D-cell. That doesn't mean don't get rid of your D-cells, just rechargeable D-cells suck. So yeah. now you've got that taken care of. Get something like a very simple 800-watt inverter that you can clamp on the battery of your car. Now you have additional backup power. You can charge unlimited numbers of batteries idling your car for 15 minutes out of a couple hours of charging. Never kill your battery. You've got another thing. You can take an extension cord, plug it into that inverter, run it into your house, run some lights and some fans and stuff like that. Just don't let the battery in the car go dead. Now you've got a basic handle on energy. Health and sanitation. You have to start thinking, what would I do if I couldn't flush my toilet? Because it happens. Well, go get some of the blue stuff. Get some big contractor-grade garbage bags. Get an extra toilet seat and a bucket. It sucks, but it's better than the alternative. right? That, so yeah. we can handle that. 
We also need to look at first aid items, first aid kit. All we can't go through all that. There could be a whole hour just in that. But medication, right. if you have maintenance medication, you should have two to three months of it on hand at all times, right? And it, you just continue through this process, and then on top of it, you add to it. Like I'm not real worried about a blizzard. Right. I, so I'm not got a lot of blizzard prep going on. Right. I am worried about tornadoes. So I, I you know, I kind of have a safe area plan for a tornado. So you also then take your individual risk assessment of your location. I'm not real worried about an earthquake. I, I'm really not. I mean, people say, well, it could happen. Yeah. Well, my, you know, I, I could get hit in the head with a meteor, too. Right. So that's not really yeah. the, what I what I really think about. If I lived in California, I'd have an earthquake plan. But you're still going to go back to those six things. You're, that's And if you think about everywhere there's ever a disaster in the world and the Red Cross lady who's going to spend your money on jet fuel comes on TV to tell you what they need, it always revolves around those six things. Yeah, and what I, what I enjoy the most about your brand of preparedness is that, and, and don't get me wrong, man, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I love the Second Amendment. I, I, I have knew you were going to say that as soon as you started to fight, like cover your I, ass. I have, I know, them. I understand. I have them, but there are so many people that are like, I'm a prepper and none, none of what you went over is ever touched on. It is how many, you know, how much ammunition do you have? Because the zombie hordes come in. Oh, the zombies, we're all going to die. And like, yeah, the chances of a zombie horde pretty low. <laughs> You know, you know, I am all about security being one of the most important things. But security is as much procedure and protocol as it is weapons. Okay, so the 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 big thing is just because it's a disaster, you're not going to have a license to start shooting people. Okay, it doesn't work that way. And even (laughs) even if you go into a, a, a huge breakdown of order like the riots we had this summer. If you shoot somebody, somebody's coming to arrest you sooner or later, unless you can truly justify what you're doing. So the first step of security is, number one, in the words of Mr. Miyagi from Karate Kid 1980 style, best defense is to no be there, right? Don't be where the punch is. So get the hell out of the places that are most likely to be at risk when there's a breakdown. And having neighbors who think like you and I do that, yes, if we have to, we will shoot you, helps a lot with that. Like, I guarantee you, you know, every house around me is is perimeter fenced. There is no front yard that's not fenced. There's big dogs in every yard. And somebody, even the old lady that lives next door to me, will shoot your ass if they feel the need to. That right there means we're probably not going to have to do it. It's like the guy that says, you know, he'll take his belt to his kid's ass, which I'm totally opposed to. But in general, if he if he's the right mindset, he probably never will have to. The fact that it could happen is enough to set a a level of discipline, right? So I think that when you live in an area, you want to pick an area where people that would do that type of harm are already thinking, not there. No, that's, that's, that's a bad place. That's, that's not a good idea. Right. Um, and, And then number two though, is to have procedure and protocol. So procedure is how you do something. Protocol is when it's implemented and how it's implemented. So I don't walk around all day long with an AR on my back. If we got into a real system of breakdown, I might. And so when do we escalate that protocol? My dog spent a lot of time indoors. 
But if we were in a situation where I was more worried about vandalism and theft, they might be a lot more outside dogs for that for that protocol during that time. So if you break your security down that way, you don't have to sit around worried about, I got 8,000 rounds. What are you going to do? I mean, really, what do you, these people live in a deluded state. And I'm not saying that as some peaceneck hippie, right? I'm saying that as a right. realist. I'm saying that as a pragmatist. On some level, I'm saying it from a postmodernist concept of doubting, right? And being skeptical of things. I, I keep hearing all this shit from this crew of people you're talking about, like they're going to 1776 someday and overthrow our tyrannical government. They can't even get their asses off of Facebook while they're being surveilled by, by Facebook and their government. They don't have enough in them to do that, but they're going to rise up and fight. This, this is nonsensical thinking. It's not going to happen. And if it does, the people that are talking about it the most, either they're the ones that are going to do the least or are going to be the first ones taken out anyway. So on that stuff, you put your security in place, you have your means of defense, and then shut up about it. I, I, I hate to be that way, but if you're smart, that's what you do. The braggart is the guy in the bar that always gets his teeth knocked in and drug out of the bar, right? He, yeah. every, everybody that's a grown-ass man that went to bars like that at some point in their life has seen the guy that lips off ends up being carried out of the bar with, with a tooth missing. That's always the case, and it doesn't change just because the mouthing off is online in today's world. No, that's yeah, I, I get that. And I think that the best thing that that, you know, my family ever did was to get out. I mean, we were living in Lubbock and 250 to 300,000 people was just too big. Hmm. And, you know, really, really glad that I did. You know, we're, we're out here in, in rural America and I I understand these people a lot better than what I was starting to see see in Lubbock. And I thought that was you know, from a security standpoint, that was, you know, if, if the zombie horde is really going to come down the pipe, then being in a very large city probably is not where you want to be. Well, and the other side of this idea, like it's too much TV, right? That's another I, oh, Miyagi yeah. saying, right? You were too much at TV, right? Like, okay, what, how, what's going to sustain this horde? How long can this exactly. horde survive when the majority of people in this in this country don't have enough to provide for themselves for a week? The parasite yeah. can can only be as strong as the host. There, there's not a, there's not a, a, a great sustainability for the road warrior mobs or whatever. It makes good movies, but it, it mm -hmm. movies are fantasy by by necessity. Nobody wants to watch a movie that's real. We call those chick flicks, and they're incredibly boring. <laughs> <laughs> no but again that's one of the reasons why i had a, a you know a, i got a serious appreciation for the way that that you come at preparedness because all this all that makes sense food either be able to learn how to grow it or learn how to store it you know have clean water you know figure out you know the, like and the thing about sanitation and where where are you going to poop are you going to dig a latrine outside? I mean, these are things that you don't think about until the water gets shut off, which doesn't happen that often. And if it does for a sustained period of time and you're running around going, well, oh my God, the, the one basic thing that I've been doing since before I can remember memories, I can't perform that function anymore. And oh, I'll go dig a hole in the ground outside. Well, you know, is it too close to the house? You know, yeah. these are the, these are these things that you don't, <laughs> Can you you don't dig a think hole where about. You, like I, I can't dig a hole where I live without equipment and explosives and, and what have you. So digging a hole here, 
uh, and not that not that easy to do. Now we uh, we have a hole. It's called a septic system. So I'm not dependent on that. So I'm not real worried about having the crap in a bucket, right? Because I have rain catch. I have a well. I have a pool. I have ponds. So as long as is yeah. my septic's working, I can dump a five gallon bucket in the back of the the tank, even if the well's off, and flush the toilet. But you, ha- you so you have to design your resiliency based on what resources and tools that you have. You have to do an honest self-assessment. And I back to what you were saying about security, I, I think if the average person does an honest self-assessment, the fact that somebody could rob them, steal from them, hurt them, break into their home, burn down their house, et cetera, are all realistic potential threats. I think the idea that you know a bunch of road warriors or zombies or something are going to come to take their tomatoes from their garden is, is not a very realistic threat. Right now, all you talk about all this and a shit ton more. I mean, you get, you do stuff like education, you talk, you have great guests and that's all that, all that can be found on the survival podcast, which brings us to podcasting. And we're getting up to past an hour and so I'm going to probably have to shorten this one up again. I want to be respectful of your time, but um, when you started podcasting, when you were doing it as an experiment, because you had a client at one of the, one of the places that, that uh, one of the companies that you were co-owning and, and working at, um, and you were like, well, I, I need to figure out how to do this for, for this customer. And you started doing it. When was it that you go, you know what? I'm doing this. This is what I want to do. So, yeah, I had a client that was a financial uh, manager who wanted to add to his portfolio a podcast. So uh, I went and sat down with him, went through everything, developed a marketing strategy and and then said, here's what it's going to cost. And I went to my web developer and said, here's the project. And he said, well, I know how to do all of this except this podcast thing. And And I said, I'll go figure it out for you. And I already had kind of in my mind that maybe this was something I wanted to do. And I had come across a podcaster and for the love of God, I cannot remember his name, but he was a libertarian political guy and he was doing a show in his car. I'm like, well, I could do that shit. So I'm like, it's the time that I have. I was putting 60 to 65 hours a weekend at the office and I had an hour and a half commute both ways. So what I had was the car time. So I started doing it in my car and it was just kind of, hey, like I need to figure this out. So if I have an audio file and a blog, I can figure out how to make a podcast and get it in iTunes and all. So we can now deliver on this promise, this open-ended promise I made. Did the first one, and it was probably immediate. That I was like, almost everything I've done in my life has led up to this. Because being in sales, marketing, being, you know, regional VP of a company, being uh, owner of a company, speaking uh, in front of large groups, I had developed a skill set as a speaker. And it did take an adjustment. It wasn't as easy as I thought it would be because when you're used to speaking in front of groups and now you're speaking in front of a microphone and there's no one to, like when you're talking to a crowd and you're losing somebody, you're like, oh shit, that dude's going to sleep. I better throw a joke in here or whatever. So it took me a while to kind of adjust to that. But it was as if my life had trained me through this profession. And strangely enough, when I got home at the end of the day, after being able to vent to my audience, I didn't want to punch a hole in a wall anymore. And it really quickly began 
to form in my mind of a plan. So I was like, well, I need a thousand listeners. Why sounds right. You know, it was before the thousand true founds model was a fan. I did uh, a thing. I didn't even know that it was a thing anyway. And so I said, I'm going to get a thousand listeners by the end of my first year, six months, you know, ended up with 2000, took the audience along for a ride and said, Hey, help me do this. And it was all a plan. It was all from the beginning. And now I'm not going to say it was a plan the week that I decided I was going to do the podcast. But the next week when I did episode one, by the end of that week, I was like, this is going to work. And I'd actually done it for months before I told my wife about it, like that I was doing this thing because she's always worried about me. That's one more thing on your plate. I'm just that kind of guy. I'm always doing something. And uh, when I told her about it, I said, you know what? I said, this is going to work. And, and I, I said to her, I said, I'm going to be on Glenn Beck's show. She said, what? Uh, yeah, I've been doing this like three months now. I've got like 500 people listening to me. I'm going to be on Glenn Beck's show. And that was a couple of years later. We got a call from the Glenn Beck show. It was, it was, <laughs> it was, and it wasn't like some, oh, wow, look at me. It was just like, I know where this is going and I could just tell. And, and to be honest with you, other than being a father and a husband, there's nothing in my life that I've done as long as I've done this. I've done this almost 13 years now. And I, I've never held a job for more than four or five years. And, and most of the, the jobs I did were, you know, a couple of years. And I'd get to a point where like, I can't learn anymore and I can't make anymore anytime quick. So I'm going to go do something else. And when I found this, it was, it, it, it almost sounds, you know, fruity to say it this way, but it's my life's work. It, it really was finding what I was born to do. Well, how did you affect that reach, you know, through marketing? You said that the thousand true fans model and, and you, uh, you gold, it's, you, you gold yourself out and said, by the end of the first year, I'll have a thousand fans. how did you go about affecting that? Well, I mean, it doesn't hurt to have first mover advantage. So I was really into the preparedness topic plus lifestyle design. When I looked on like iTunes, which is where everything, if it weren't on iTunes, it didn't exist as a podcast in 2008. There was nothing good. You know, you'd find like a preparedness show and you listen to it and the guy's like, water is very important. You need to, okay, I want to kill myself already. I can do, I can dominate this space. So I picked the niche and I picked the marking. I picked the tagline of helping you live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. That took away the objection that I don't need this. And then, you know, you start to get a few people and you cultivate those people the same way we cultivate plants in an ecosystem. And when I said, hey, you know, I want to get to a thousand listeners. So if I get to a thousand listeners, and it was so long ago, I'll give away an iPod with a custom inscription on the back of it to one person to help me get there. So please tell people about it. Now, knowing that people generally don't like to go, hey, you know what? I listen to this, this prepper guy, right? Like they don't want to tell their friends. <laughs> I knew what they would do. They would go out and they would post it on message boards and in their blogs and in stuff like that. So that was, I asked for this and I know the result will be that. And that would not only get a direct effect of traffic to the site, it would, especially at the time when it was an easier nut to crack, kick in search engine optimization. Because how were people going to link to it? They were going to call it what it was, the survival podcast. So all of a sudden, all of my internet properties, not just the main site, you put survival podcast into Google and out of the 10 top results, I had nine of them. And so it was a methodical marketing plan but I, I I can't leave out that oh, number number two. You got to be good. You got to perfect your craft. So like I would record in the morning, get to the office, throw the music on the ends, and upload it, and spend my day running my company. 
at the end of the day, I would get in my car and drive home and I would listen to my own show from that day. And, and people think, oh, you, you must really like the sound of your own voice. No, I was being a dick to myself, right? So the same way <laughs> that when you play football in high school and they take, you know, eight millimeter film of it and you watch your game tape, you don't watch it for what you did right. You watch it for what you did wrong. So I would listen to myself every day and go, boy, you have a you have a placeholder with using the word all right at the end of a sentence, don't you? You need to stop that. Or, oh, the way that you handled that wasn't very good. Like, oh, you flipped out there and people like when you flip out, but you probably went a little too far this time. Let's rein that back in. So I critiqued myself, especially those, those initial 18 months of my car. I was critiquing myself every day. And I was asking people to come along on the journey with me. I knew if I could get a core group of just even a couple hundred people that really loved what I was doing, that they would become vested in my success. They, they would see it, that my success was their success. They didn't want me to go away. And if I couldn't make money, I was going to go away. You can't do something sustainably for 12 years for free, unless you're independently wealthy. So they had this vested interest in it. And I have people today that are proud of the fact I was listening to Jack in 2008. I've been here since 2008. Um, you get that by being loyal to your people, honest with your people, and putting their needs first at all times. I didn't take a dime out of it for the first 12 months. I was 12 yeah. months into it for a penny. I had people send me money. I sent it back. I didn't take a sponsor until I was like seven, eight months in. But I'm like, I'm not taking a sponsor when I have like 15 people. You're going to be pissed. You're going to give me money. I'm going to give you no business, right? <laughs> like it was it was cultivated. I took what I knew about business and what I knew about permaculture and what I learned about permaculture along the way. And I built this business very much on the eight forms of capital model where I want not just money, but I want social capital. And I want, you know, I, I, I want material capital and I want goodwill in the audience spread elsewhere. And the other thing I did is I created a lot of sub community communities. We have a Zello channel. We have, you know, now we have a telegram channel that's new, but we created a forum. We created groups and social networks and things like that. And I would create it. I would get some people in there. There'd be some natural leaders that would rise to the top and take over as like moderators and admins. And I do what no brand ever listened to me and ever did when I was a consultant. And it made me miserable. I let go. I let them run it. People are like, I want to go viral, but I want to control it. Okay, I can't help you, right? Like, you can't control something. Like, if you want to not have something go viral, post it and say, let's make this go viral. That's a guarantee that it's not going to happen, no matter how good it is. You right. have to let go. So I let go. I, I was comfortable with people talking about what I was doing, even critically at times, as long as they were talking about it. And I was at peace with it. And then I just did my job new interesting engaging content every single day and never miss if i was sick unless i was on my back i worked through it and 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 that also it built incredible um loyalty from people like this guy gives a shit and, and that was a differentiating factor like i'm there's so many people doing podcasts today anybody comes up with anything they, they come up with a podcast about it like i was I came at this from the beginning that if I'm not, if somebody gets off my show at the end of the show and goes, I wasn't entertained and educated today, I'm not going to be a success. That they had to come away with something they could do from every episode. 
And they had, and it had to be delivered in some way where they felt under. If I didn't make you laugh at least once, I failed. And and I, I I can't give you more than that. I mean, people always say the successful people oversimplify their success. That's because success is simple, but it ain't easy. I mean, it was hard. There was a point when I was building it toward my walk away from corporate America that I was putting so much into this and so much into my you know my my other responsibilities that my wife barely saw me. And I said. Give me six months. Just give me six more months and it'll all be worth it. And it took a, a level of sacrifice that, that seldom are people willing to do. I used to get up at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning to do my show prep and, so that I would be able to get in a car and do a show on the way to, to an office an hour away. Like you, you, And the people that think it's easy, none of them were bumping into me when I was coming down the stairs to my home office to do that. And so I believe anybody can build this level of success if you're passionate about something and you get good at your task and you deliver. But I mean, especially if you're going to start out like I did as a side hustle, that's the commitment it takes. Yeah, I, I start this show at five in the morning. There you I, go. I, I stumble, I stumble in this damn room, and I start looking for news stories on Bitcoin at five, and and I'm on the air at six. And it's, it's becoming more and more rare that something happens that, that I can't do the show because I'm like, shit, dude, it's five in the morning. There's nothing going on. Yep. If you can get up at five, you can do a show. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. But um, I want to make sure before we, before we get off this call that the people know how to connect with you. So can you, it's shill fest time, bro. Yeah. Shill, shill me all your goods. So, I mean, you can get to everything by going to the survivalpodcast.com or just search for the survival podcast on any of the search engines. You'll find us a short domain. If you don't want to, if you're on your phone, especially, you don't want to type all that shit in tspc.co, tspc.co will take you there. Uh, from there, you can connect with me on social media you'll find that I no longer am engaged on Twitter and Facebook. I'm tired of being surveilled and reported to the state. So we have active communities on uh, many of the alternative social media sites. We're happy to engage with you that way. If there's a major podcasting platform, I'm on it. So if you search for the survival podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, et cetera, I'm there. I think we're on Spotify was kind of the last holdout on, on some things. I think we're on there too, but uh, odds are, if you use a podcast uh, uh, product or platform, we're on that. Um, other than that, you know, I'm easy to reach. Uh, my email address is jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And make sure you put TSPC in the subject line if you email me with show news. That way, if and when you end up in a junk folder, eventually I'll, I'll dig you out and find you. And uh, check us out. We, like I said, we've been doing this 13 years almost. Uh, two-time podcast of the year award winner. We have about a quarter million downloads an episode. So we're, we're probably doing something right or we wouldn't still be here doing it. Hell yeah, man. Now, Jack, don't, don't get off the, the line, but I'm going to go ahead and end this yeah. thing here. Uh, Jack, I want to, uh, I want to say that we, I appreciate you spending all this time with us today, man. It's a, uh, um, you know, you never get your time back and, and I appreciate it. Thank you so much. No problem. Jack Spearco is a really good dude, man. If you have not listened to the survival podcast and you're interested in anything that even remotely looks like, you know, 
gardening, permaculture, preparedness of all manner, uh, all manner of preparedness, then Jack Spearco's your go-to guy. Um, not only that, but he's a he's an infinite resource of other people in the spaces. <clears throat> so yeah, the survival podcast. Now um, I'm trying to get Jack to put survival podcast onto Sphinx.chat. Um, it's in my opinion, Sphinx.chat right now is the best way, and the I don't know. It's not just. It's not really. It may not be the best way, but it's the most pure way that I can think of to support your favorite podcast because uh, it allows you to stream value for value in real time while you're getting the value of the podcast that you're listening to. And it's a good way to support podcasters. It's the way that I support my favorite podcasters. The way you do this is you go to sphinx.chat, you get the app, you go to tribes.sphinx.chat, and then you find the tribe that you the tribe that you want to be a part of that tribe is basically a collection of people. And if the tribe owner has slipped their podcast RSS feed into the correct slot, then their podcast becomes available. If they don't have a podcast, you won't see a spot for podcasts. If they do have a podcast and they have done the, all the things and reached for all the stuff, then their podcast will show up. And then you can set a slider from 100 Satoshis per minute all the way down to zero or one or three Satoshis per minute so that you can stream them value. Well, not if you set it to zero, but come on, but you know, set it to at least one. <laughs> and that way, while you're listening to the podcast, at the same time, you're giving them value. They're giving you value. In my opinion, it's probably the purest way and in the most interesting way and the most, the best glimpse of what's coming to us in the future if you want to support somebody's podcast and I would, I would enjoy it if you would support this podcast through that function. Cause for me, there's just, there's something about it that j it just makes sense. So I'm trying to get uh, Jack to do it. Now here's the funny thing. Jack's heard about Sphinx chat once. Okay. That's his, his first touch. He thought at the time that there's no way that this could work because he was thinking that we were talking about on chain transactions and I made sure that he understood that this has nothing to do with on-chain transactions until you want to close your lightning channel, uh, that this is in fact streaming Satoshis in real time on the lightning network. And then if for whatever reason you need to close that channel and, and uh, drive the value out of it, you could do that later. But for the, you know, for the interim, while value for value streaming is occurring, it's actually occurring over the lightning network. So that was the second touch that Jack Spearco had <clears throat> for the Sphinx chat app. Um, and I'm hoping that because I was talking to him directly, that it doesn't take seven touches for him to get his podcast over, considering that it's just, I mean, it's really easy. If you have a podcast and you want to put on Sphinx chat, dude, go to sphinx.chat, get the app. And then if you don't want to mess with uh, setting up your own lightning node or setting up setting it up to work with your own lightning node. Um, you can rent a node from them if they have any available. That was, last time I looked, they had, they didn't have any available, but they were spinning some up. I rented mine for 79 cents. I mean, come on, it's dirt. It was dirt cheap at the time. And it was, and I did mine around the same price that we're at right now, which is 18,290. Yeah, we've got some FUD going on. I won't get into it. I'll talk about that shit tomorrow when I do the news. 
Um, <clears throat> 79 cents. I got, I got myself a lightning node, uh, rented it for the month. Um, just so that I could figure all this stuff out, you know, you know, they give you instructions on how to do it with your own lightning node, but you know, it, it, it can be a little difficult in either event with that. <clears throat> I'm thinking that Jack, um, I'm going to email him today with more information, like the, you know, the actual, you know, links to the websites and, you know, made the instruction sets and all that kind of shit. Uh, and I'm hoping that very soon I'll be able to stream Jack Spierko's Satoshi's while I listen to his podcast named the survival podcast at the same time that he's giving me the information I'm giving him value. It's value for value transfer. Um, and also I, I don't think he understands that Adam Curry, the pod father is connected to all this um, through podcast 2.0. If you don't know what I'm talking about or who Adam Curry is, uh, just Google podcast 2.0 and you will find everything you need and you can dive down that rabbit hole if you want. And while you're doing that, I will see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.